You're listening to Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This speaker series is part of a course in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. This week's guest is Andrew Wang. He's the head of TV development and production at Juve, a production company run by Viola Davis. Long before that, he was a young RTF graduate who had just moved to L.A. and loved television. He began his career working at Storyline Entertainment, and then later Alloy Entertainment, where he developed and managed several popular series, including Gossip Girl, The Vampire Diaries, and Pretty Little Liars. From there, he moved on to Bravo, where, as vice president for scripted television and production, he helped the network transition to scripted programming, such as The Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce and others. In the conversation today, Wang describes his career path and explains in detail the ways new series and ideas are found, shopped to studios, and ultimately become TV productions. He also describes the changes he's seen in the structure of media companies and the industry as a whole. He spoke on November 13th, 2017 on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. Okay, guys, let's go ahead and get going. Uh, Welcome to our next installment of the Media Industry Conversation Speakers Series. I'm thrilled to welcome Mr. Andrew Wang here with us today. Before we get started, I just want to make a few thank yous. Uh, First off, I want to thank my colleague, Cindy McCreary, as well as uh, our chair, Tom Schatz, and my colleague, Richard Lewis. Uh, In addition, I want to thank our grad student support staff, Brett Siegel, Kyle Rather, Annie Major, and Britta Hansen. And I want to thank the Moody College of Communication for their support for this series, especially Dean Jay Bernhardt and Assistant Dean Mike Wilson. And so with that said, let me just give you guys a little bit of background. I know that uh, most of you have read up already, but (laughs) read your bio and all the details. But uh, just to review briefly, So Andrew Wang is, we're proud to say, an RTF grad, most important detail. Uh, And today we're gonna talk about his career trajectory, uh, starting out at RTF, moving through his time at Storyline Entertainment, working on both scripted and non-scripted series, uh, through his position as Vice President of TV Development and Production for Alloy Entertainment, into his time, so many great, different types of positions Thank you. Uh, at Bravo as Vice President of Scripted Television and Production, moving them from unscripted to scripted. And then now in his current position uh, as Head of TV Development and Production at Juvie Entertainment. Yes. So let's uh, go ahead and dig into sure. the discussion. Uh, first off, he has a clip. Yeah, I have a clip that I want to show you guys. So the. At Juvie, we sort of really focused on trying to find artists that have something to say. And this came from us to us from someone that Viola Davis had worked with in her acting career. And she came to us with this web series that we then took to ABC and sold. And then they gave us more money to make it um, a full digital series. So this is the trailer for that. You can actually see it on ABC.com now. But, um, but I thought it'd be a good way to start. So. So that's American Coco. 
Um, and Dara Kilpatrick, who is the star of that, she created it. And right now, she has a pilot on Amazon. So it's called The Climb. So you can actually go watch it now. It just came out on Friday. Cool. So. Were you involved with that? Or? No, that one was not us. <laughs> um, we were just involved with this one. So maybe we can uh, talk a little bit, since you started off with this, sure. in terms of what you do and what your role was, what various responsibilities you had in relation to this yeah. particular uh, series. Yeah, so um, this one actually already was with Viola and Julius, who's her husband and producing partner. They had actually already set this up at ABC Digital when I came on board to the company. Um, but shortly after I came on board, I think it actually was my very first meeting that I had. It was me and DR, and we went in and met all the network people. She didn't know who I was. We were looking at each other like we were complete strangers, but we were sort of trying to make the best show we could make. And so. Um, we went in, they told us, you know, here are some people to meet, costume designers, line producers, and we just started that process. And, you know, it took us a little bit because she then had to write the scripts for season two. Season one was already on YouTube, and so she was just using those scripts again. Um, but season two, we had to write. So in that process, that's when I really stepped in um, and brought sort of the experience that I had working in scripted television to just sort of say, okay, now how can we really make season two amazing. Um, and then look back at season one and say, how do we redo season one so that we you know, don't waste opportunity? They're giving us all this extra money. Let's do the best we can with it. And so, so did you reshoot season one? We reshot season one. Wow. Um, we reshot season one. We did season two all at the same time. Um, it was about two weeks over Christmas holidays. And you know. I don't know if any of you guys saw the season one. It's a complete upgrade from season one. Season one, she shot with her and her husband for like $3,000. We had a little bit under a million. So, wow. So hence we could get some and, of the... And if I saw it, the first season was six episodes. Is that correct? Six episodes. And then the second one was six episodes as well. Okay. So, and, and 10, 11 minutes 10 12 each? 12 minutes each, yeah. Was there a sort of rationale for that number of episodes and that length? Um, you know, we sort of went with... You know, it's, my theory about producing is just always go with your creator. Mm -hmm. And she really believed that six episodes is the best way to tell the story for season one. We actually had, I think, budgeted for eight episodes for season two. But then when we actually saw the number that we were going to get, we couldn't afford those episodes. So we had to figure out where to end the story in season two. But um, the length was sort of a discussion because I was used to watching episodes at like five minutes each. Mm -hmm. She really believed that you needed the 10 to 12 minutes for each experience. And so we went with that. Is know. this the first web series that you've been involved with? Or? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did yeah. you find the process of developing a web series to be substantively different from doing uh, sort of more traditional? Yeah. Not too much in terms of the development process, mm -hmm. in terms of you know, working with the writer on the script, and then also how to produce the show is the same. What I would say was exciting about it was, was that any time that we were like, I don't know, can we do that? It was like, well, it's online, who cares, you know? <laughs> so we were able to, at least as far as we could try and do, we would push the envelope as much as we could, and we would make an active effort to keep towing that line. So was so. ABC involved differently with this than they are with their linear content? Very much so. So this was originally, so this is part of their ABC digital program, which actually is no longer running anymore. But ideally, it was meant to incubate creators and or they had people like um, 
I can't remember, Ty Burrell from Modern Family, he had a webisode series for ABC. Like any of the talent from ABC's mm -hmm. stable, they would give them you know, some money to shoot some passion project of theirs. Oh, cool. So that they could incubate the project and then see if there was a show there to be sold outside of this platform. Oh, interesting. Um, but since then, they've just consolidated some of the departments, so it's no longer there. But. Gotcha. Well, I want to back us up a little bit sure. and go back to your days in RTF. God. Goodness. Uh, <laughs> and so maybe just sort of situate us roughly the time period yeah. and uh, what you thought you wanted to do during your time or as you got out sure. in relation to media and how that evolved. I think it was 2002 okay. when I graduated. Not that long ago. About 15 years. Um, and when I was studying here, I didn't quite know what it was. I, wanted. I knew I wanted to work in television. Mm -hmm. Um, and back then, television was sort of the, the bastard stepchild of media. Um, it was like no one understood what it was. Um, I think I was the one that was watching Real World, and people were like, why, do you, why are you watching that show? <laughs> um, but it was something that I grew up with and something that I really wanted to work in. And so I really made that my path. And you know, the unique thing about UT is that you know, all the opportunities are there if you want it. You just have to seek it out, you know. And the university is so big, but you know, if you have a specific focus, it was very easy to find people with similar interests. So once I decided I want to work in television, um, I knew I had to be out in LA. Yeah. That really is the place where TV is. So my goal was then just to sort of gather enough things in my arsenal so that when I got out there, I had enough if I need to just hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. um, and so I did that, and then, and then when I got out to LA, it was a lot of just interning and a lot of temping until you found that first job. And so. Storyline was? Storyline was the first the job. First job. So what were you doing in your first job? What kinds of responsibilities, that sort of thing? Yeah, I was answering the phones a lot, <laughs> getting a lot of coffee. Okay. Um, but learning a lot about the business. Mm -hmm. um, so Storyline actually was a great place to be um, the principals of that company are Craig Zayden and Neil Marin. Um, you might know them now. They do all the live programming for NBC. Um, they did Chicago the movie and Hairspray the movie. But when I was there, they had a hand in every single pot. So they had TV movies, TV movie musicals, TV series, movies and productions. So being as someone who just didn't know what anything was entertainment, like I didn't know that there was a difference between production and development. I didn't know exactly what the agents did. It was just great to sit there and be on the phone calls and listen to all the conversations that were happening and start nailing down who the players were in the business. Mm -hmm. So that was very helpful. But a lot of what I did when I first started there was, was be the receptionist and then just you know read as much as I could, get my hands on as much material as I could. And then I was there for about five years and three years of which I was an assistant, and then they promoted me to like a low-level creative executive, mm -hmm. um, and they brought in someone above me to run the TV department. Okay. But that was a sort of great place to be at the moment because that guy who they brought in didn't have a lot of experience developing television either, and so he would bring me along wherever he went. So it was basically I was able to learn TV development without having to be the one in the front taking all the bullets. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think it was invaluable to have that experience. So was it mainly reading scripts, 
Yeah, so when, I, when you moved into that creative executive position, it was then starting to find writers, um, coming up with ideas. You know, the unique thing about each company is different in their own way and what their brands are and how they develop. But, but Craig and Neil, they, they had a brand of doing musicals, but that wasn't a very broad brand. Like, you couldn't really go out there and just sell musicals to, to every network. And so part of what we were trying to figure out and what I was trying to do is figure out what the what the, the brand outside of musicals was, what the, what the sort of shift was that you could make to the community and say to them, oh, this is actually something that is a little bit different, but still within our wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. So what we came up with was we, um, we were world creators. If you're in a musical, you're creating a world. You have to sort of create a whole new language and how you speak to the audience. And so that allowed us to branch into some genre. That allowed us to branch into some other areas, um, like period, which is world creation as well. So I was able to go to the agencies and work with the agents. Um, and when you're at that level, you tend to work with people along your same tracks. So it was a lot of coordinators, a lot of assistants who just got promoted. And you know, you went out there and just said, here's the company, and here's what I'm doing. Here's what I want to do with the company. Um, here's what the company is doing well. And here's how I think me as an executive can take what they're doing and expand it. Mm -hmm. And one of those meetings I had, I remember, um, was with an agent, was an assistant extra, an agency at CAA. And he said, I totally get you. I get what you want to do. I said, great. Who do I talk above you? And he said, no, no, you talk to me. And I said, OK. He ended up being the head of the TV lit department years later. So we sort of grew up together. The people that you meet when you're starting out are the yep. people you rise up with. Yep. Yeah. So how did you then moved on to Alloy? Yes. Correct. So yeah. what were your roles there? What how did your responsibilities change or did they? They you know, as they changed a little bit because then I think I was now actually in a position where I was responsible for everything I was developing. Mm -hmm. um, but I was ready for it. And so storyline ended because the strike had happened. It was just at that moment and so we had lost our television deal. Uh, and so I was sort of forced into trying to figure out what my next move was. But you know, one of the best questions that someone had asked me when I was looking for my next job was, what do you want to do? Like, what do you want to work on? You know, I had always said that I wanted to work in television, but there's so many different genres in television. Mm -hmm. And so I just remembered <laughs> being here at UT and watching a lot of the WB and just growing up with that cast of incredible young actors. Um, I think I actually may have cut out most of their pictures and put them on my wall. Um, <laughs> but that was sort of what I had passion for. I mean, it was, I would say it's like Buffy was graduating high school when I was graduating high school. Felicity literally went from pre-med to art the same year that I did the same thing. Like, I was like, they were living my life. <laughs> so I just wanted to recreate that experience for other people. Right. Like, at that moment, I was like, I don't even care if I win awards or Emmys or whatever, if I'm part of the cultural conversation, mm -hmm. then I feel like I've done what I want to do in television. So I just said to all the agents at that point that I knew, I said, hey, I'm looking for a job. I want to rebuild something like the WB. I want to do some young adult television. And Alloy was on that list of yeah. places. They had just gotten Gossip Girl picked up to pilot. Um, and they had, they were in production on a series called Samurai Girl. And I said, I, I know how to do this company. Like, I know how to work in this space. Um, Pretty Little Liars at that point was just, I think, three books. And I had read the books before I even knew about the job. So it was like, it was all in my wheelhouse. And so 
when I went there to interview, they clearly understood that I knew the brand. But similarly, like I did a storyline, it was about how you sell yourself as someone who could do more than just what they were already doing. So what I said to them was, you guys have a fan base of young teenage girls that are incredible and will follow you wherever, but there's another fan base that's just sitting right next to you that is as passionate about their stuff, and that's the genre fan base. And if we can get the genre fan base and the sort of teen girl fan base to sort of come together, we can do anything. And so that's how Vampire Diaries came about. And then so from there, we were able to then move into other genre stuff, but then from genre, then we can move into adult stuff. So that was sort of the goal, was like, how do we go from young adult to adult? So. And so what was, for example, with the Vampire Diaries, yeah. what were you involved with doing in terms so Vampire of that? Diaries, yeah, so Vampire Diaries was, I would say probably my first, that was like my, the one that I could really take ownership of as something that I had set up. And that one had a really unique track, um, but I can take you through sort of how that came about. So Alloy is a company that we sort of say we traffic in books. You know, and this is sort of a company that has a lot of novels that they develop internally. Those novels are then developed in TV shows, um, but Alloy contains, uh, owns all the rights to those books. So when I was working there, you had access to the entire library. And mm -hmm. so it was literally like a list of books um, or log lines or even upcoming books that you could say, oh, this is a TV show. Mm -hmm. So Vampire Diaries was on that list and I remember my love of Buffy, and I was like, I think it's time for another one. Um, and no one wanted to do it. Um, really? Everyone was like, True Blood's on the air right now. We don't need another vampire show. Buffy's still in everyone's mind. And I was like, I don't know. There's just something about this young interview with the vampire, mm -hmm. which is really how they developed that book, that felt right at that moment. And so um, I sent that book around to almost every network. Um, and you know, when you're starting out in the business, you, as an executive, you meet everybody. So you reach out and you send lunches and you know, drinks with all the executives at all the networks, the studios, agents, whoever. But so any network that I went into and just said, hey, here's what we're doing now at Alloy, here's what we wanna do, I would drop that book off. Um, or you would hear about from agents that there are writers in certain deals um, with the studios, some of them with studio deals that we were involved with um, and like, all right, let me send them that book, see if they'll do that for us, you know? Um, so I sent Vampire Diaries out, I think, all over town <laughs> and got no traction whatsoever. I think we had a little traction at MTV. And then October came around and Twilight came out. Ah. And I got a call from my CW executive saying, oh, remember that book that you sent me in July? <laughs> um, what is that about again? <laughs> so we, I told her and she said, Listen, if you can get us a writer, I remember it was a Friday, if you can get us a writer by the end of today, we can put this into development. And I called my studio and I said, oh my gosh, I think we have something here. Who can we get to do this? And I think I was too young to know that I shouldn't be saying that book out without the studio approving it um, because they actually technically own all our books. Mm -hmm. And so I had sort of gone around them anyway, but they were very happy that the CW was interested. What ended up happening was, was that day, my CW executive, she, who used to work for Kevin Williamson, huh. had lunch with his friend, Julie Pleck. Julie loved the book. Kevin then read it over the weekend and decided to come on board as supervisor, and then we were in development. 
Wow. And we got um, I, an outline, like last week in December, it was like over Christmas holidays. I think I remember being in my parents' house in Houston doing a notes call um, from my old childhood desk. <laughs> and, and we got, you know, we gave them notes on the outline and then we got a script in. And the script needed a lot of work, but because it was Kevin and because the package was so huge and Twilight was blowing up, we got our pilot pickup. Wow. And so then we did the work and made that pilot the best we could. We hired the director, we hired the crew, we shot in Atlanta. Um, and then it was just sort of magic after that. It was a hit right off the bat, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty huge yeah. after that. Yeah. 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 And we were a little scared too, because I remember us having to, I think it was Thursday nights, like they had put us on like a tough time period, but they really believed in it. Mm -hmm. So. So did you stay consistently involved with that once I it did. was going? Yeah. So what would your involvement be as the show's continuing on? So it's different for each company, but with that company, they wanted you to be the development and the production executive. So there was that sort of same consistency for the creators. So after it was on the air, you know, you would then be monitoring getting scripts in. And for us on that show, we, at that point, Alloy wasn't quite the same alloy that it became after I left, um, they were still somewhat dependent on the experience of the studio. And so the studio and us, we would do the notes at the same time, but basically we would get scripts in for each of the following episodes. And we, you know, you get the script in that day, the next day you have a notes call, you give your thoughts on how you can make the show better. Um, and a lot of that actually is, you know, being a fan of television. You read it and you say, what as a fan of this show would I want to see and what do I feel like you are not giving me enough of? Mm -hmm. And you know, are we telling a good story? Is there enough stakes here? Is there something that, are we creating the show in a way that feels consistent so that people know what experience they're getting when they come and watch the television show? Um, but we would give notes and then we would start getting into production. Um, some of the stuff that they actually did in the actual physical production of it was harder for us to follow because it was in Georgia. Right. Um, on shows like Pretty Little Liars, where I worked on that, you could actually go to set. And you can actually sort of be involved in the conversations of costume design. <laughs> you can actually sit in on the table reads and you can, you know, in the production meetings, you can talk about sort of how to change certain things or move sets or whatnot. But because Vampire Diaries was removed from us, mm -hmm. it was harder for us to sort of stay involved in that way. But, but so yeah. how many projects would you be involved in shepherding at a given time? Was it quite variable? Or? It varied. You know, Alloy, when I first started there, they had Gossip Girl and Samurai Girl and Privileged. And then after I was there, um, me and my boss, I think, in one year had put up four pilots and four series got picked up. And I didn't sleep. Uh, <laughs> Sounds intense. It was intense. But we, you know, that's what you got in the business for. And at one point, we were covering nine shows while still trying to develop new stuff, you know? How, how big was the company or your division? It was me and my boss and her boss. So it was really wow. lean. Yeah. <laughs> and it was great. We ended up hiring more people after that. We yeah. hired another vice president to sort of help me sort of monitor some of the shows that were in production already mm -hmm. um, and just to give another voice in development but but it was it was a lean machine yeah you know. so how long did you stay there and so I was there for uh, about four years oh. um, and then I wasn't gonna leave and and then someone called about Bravo um, I got a call from a manager who said Bravo is looking for a scripted executive and 
I thought you'd be perfect. And I think I must have been talking about housewives ad nauseum. Like it wasn't a thing yet, but I think I couldn't stop talking about it. So I think they knew to pitch my name. Um, and but what he didn't know was that at Alloy, we had actually sold a project to Bravo as they were just tone, put, putting their toe in the water in terms of scripted. And they literally had no idea how to do scripted development. Like they had unscripted executives in the meeting and and they know this. The, the notes that they were giving us in that first draft was like, you know, line notes, you know, and those are the notes you usually don't get in that first draft, mm -hmm. but it took them like four months to give us notes. So I sort of had good insight into what was wrong. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also had the sort of confidence of being like, well, I don't really <coughs> want to leave Alloy. So I'll go in and just see what Bravo's about. Um, and it's a good lesson to just always take any meeting. Um, so I went into interview with Bravo. Um, they said what they want to do, they want to move into scripted in a big way. Um, the goal at that point was to put up shows by the end of the year, which was it, like ridiculous. <laughs> um, they had like no slate whatsoever. But you know, at some point, I just kept going on the interview process. I met Andy Cohen, and then I met his boss, Francis Berwick. And then by the time I was meeting Lauren Zelaznik, who was at that point, you know, the CEO of of Bravo and all that, I was like, oh my God, they're gonna offer me the job. And so um, I got some great advice from my old boss at Alloy when I told her and she said, you have to take this job because you'll never be a full executive if you don't take a network job. Interesting. You need to have the information from both sides of the table. You have to know how to sell, but you also have to know how to buy. And then, then people will perceive you in a whole different way. Wow, so, so was this around 2012? Uh, Bravo was, yeah, about 2012. Okay, okay, I'm just trying to sort of... Yeah, 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 about the, 2012. The yeah. trajectory. Yeah. Okay, so you moved to Bravo. Can you then talk to us about what it was like being on the network side and how sure. it was different? So, I mean, it was really exciting. I mean, the thing about starting, the, that initiative that they wanted to do was so great just because it was, it was total freedom. Like, they put so much trust in what I wanted to do. And at that point in my career, I had done enough teen shows that I was like, okay, I'm ready to grow up a little bit more. <laughs> so it was nice to sort of move into the adult space. Um, but it was also at a point where cable was just becoming a huge thing. Mad Men was just, you know, sort of at its height. And there were all these scripts from the broadcast networks that were being passed on by incredible female showrunners. Um, so when we went out to the community saying, hey, we want to be in scripted programming, and what do you have? We got all these incredible writers like Christopher Vernoff, um, you know, just coming in and saying, hey, here's a passion project of mine. And we were able to put in development of quite a few of those things. And, you know, the, the conversations we were having were exciting. It was like, what is, what is Bravo on the scripted side? Mm -hmm. You know, is it a version of Housewives? Um, but if it is a version of Housewives, as a Housewives viewer, would you want to watch that, you know? Right. Or do you want something different? And then we had the conversation internally about Bravo being, and this might be for way before your guys' time, but it was an arts network at one point. Mm -hmm. Like it was Project Runway, it was Queer for the Straight Guy, it was the Cirque du Soleil show. You know, it was like, it was really about arts, less about sort of table flipping. And so, <laughs> so we, we had to have the conversation like, well, do we service that audience? Because that audience may come to scripted programming and watch Mad Men but will those people watch Housewives? So it was a constant sort of discussion. So what we ended up deciding to do was to develop Housewives adjacent shows. So things like Heathers, 
Um, we were adapting a version of The Joneses, the movie. Um, and then things that were a little credier, things that were a little bit more, we had think like a 1980s period piece. We had something that was based on a um, Swedish format called Rita. Um, and so like we were just trying to figure out which way to go. And how big was your team that you were working with? Um, it was me. <laughs> it was me and my, my boss. My okay. Boss. Yeah. okay. Yeah. And they wanted to keep it very lean. They mm -hmm. didn't want all these opinions as they were just sort of figuring out what that brand was. They wanted to keep it me and then top level. So. so did you have a sense of like, this is the, demo? I mean, obviously female driven, yeah. but like demographic range you're aiming for? Totally. So the interesting thing about Bravo, and I'll take you through it, which is that the first two years were amazing. I mean, it was that goal of getting the show in the air. Um, Lauren Zelaznik, um, who I'm a huge fan of, um, she is sort of say like a visionary. She is high risk, high reward. That's her theory about how to work in television. Um, she put up Shots of the Sunset, Queer for the Straight Guy. Like those were her like big moves. And she, she wanted to just get shows in the air. And so she was like, let's just develop a bunch of stuff. Let's just put out stuff on the air. So the first two years was really great because it was the sort of wild, wild west of what Bravo could be. Um, and, then, and then we'll talk about it later, but we had a sort of shift in regime, which was a very different type of development process. Mm. So, but, but being at Bravo in that time, it, was, it really was just like how to figure out what that audience was that we were trying to get to, but we weren't also sure yet what exactly that meant. Like, do we want to bring in viewers that don't watch Housewives? If we were to gain the Housewives viewers, maybe we don't need them. Maybe we need to bring in the other half. So how do we make this a fuller network right, right. and diversify our demographic? Um, but the one thing we did sort of always lean on was, was that it's what would I watch, you know? Um, and that's sort of how it developed now, too, is just what do I want to watch? Yeah, yeah. So Girlfriend's Guide, was that the first? Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, yeah. Yeah, so maybe if you, if you don't mind walking us yeah. through like what you did with that and how, that, how your role with that was different or similar from, say, Vampire Diaries. So yeah, so, on the, so with Vampire Diaries, as I sort of walked you through the process, is being on the selling side. It's you always sort of pushing that rock up the hill. <laughs> um, but, you know, Vampire Diaries came about a little bit differently because we had a book that we then showed the network and then they were excited for it. The traditional process is you come up with an idea or you yourself option a book and then you find a writer and then you go and pitch it. And then you pitch it to your studio or your network. And then if they buy into it, then you're in script development, you do an outline, you write a pilot, hopefully you get a pilot picked up and then you get to series. Mm -hmm. So, but on the network side, you get, to, you get the thing on the, on the producer side is you see every single step. So you see every single draft of that script. So by the time it gets to the network, you've seen six versions of that script. Mm -hmm. But the network, you only see one version. And that version has gone through multiple versions of notes. So coming at it from that angle, you had to be aware that your thoughts had to sort of be sensitive to the fact that, that these, this poor writer had already gone through six rounds of notes. Um, but in terms of Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, so that came to us a little bit differently that came out of um, a meeting that my boss had had with Ari Greenberg at WME. And she, Marty had just written the script that was at Showtime. Um, they passed on it for Penny Dreadful, because um, hmm. they're moving in a different direction. Wow. And he said, I have this great script that you guys should take a look at. It was a half hour cable comedy at that point. 
we weren't in the half hour business. And so we said, well, there's something really great about what she's trying to say here, but it doesn't have the dramatic stakes of a one hour. It didn't even have the dramatic stakes that Housewives had. Mm. Um, and the, the trick with reality television, if you're on a network that has it, is that the, the stakes for reality television are so huge because they're real that your scripted stakes have to almost match that or go the other direction for it to actually stand out. So we basically said that with Girlfriend's Guy, we would want to develop it at the network if she would be willing to do an hour version of it. So she did a rewrite on it. It was a great script. Um, and the process of the network that you don't get to see on the producing side is all the discussions that happen leading up to the decision about making a pilot. So it's, it goes through all the testing. It goes through research. It goes through marketing. It goes through ad sales. It goes through, I mean, everyone weighs in. And you're in a room full of executives, like the heads of each department, all the way from legal to business affairs to just talking about why this show makes sense for the network. And if there's a consensus, I mean, most of the time, it's still the president's decision if she wants to make it because she's spending the money, mm -hmm. but it is a huge form and discussion about whether or not we want to do it. And with Girlfriend's Guide, we felt like that was the best first shot we could make in scripted. It felt like if we could do the grounded, sophisticated version, not that Housewives aren't sophisticated, <laughs> uh, version of that show, we would have something. And so we decided to pick up the pilot. And so on the network side, on the producing side, you're always asking for approvals. So you'll submit, you know, costume designers. This is the person we want to hire. Um, here's their lookbook. This is how we think they're going to, you know, create the show in this way. This is a production designer. This is how they would craft the sets and whatnot. Um, here's your composer. And you're always getting the network to approve those things before you can hire them. Mm -hmm. On the network side, you're hiring them. So you see the option and you say, great. Or you say, I have real concerns about this. Do you think that you can overcome these concerns I have about this person? Um, you know, and sometimes it's a discussion with the creator. Sometimes they'll really fall on their sword for somebody. You just kind of have to go with it. Um, but like I said, so on the network side, it's always about sort of approving things. Mm -hmm. But when you get down to production, the cool thing about being in production and being on set is that no matter which side of the table you're on, you're sort of in it together at that point. Yeah, yeah. Everyone has everything in that show, so you just want it to be better. Um, you just look at things a little differently. On the producing side, you are always trying to make sure that the creator's vision doesn't get lost mm -hmm. um, from the evil network executives, which I was. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the network side, you're just trying to make sure that, that this show will hit the target that you need to hit. Mm -hmm. um, and that what everyone wanted from this show, what everyone thought it could do, whether it was get in more men or whether it was you know, bring in an older audience or whether it was you know, bringing the level of sophistication up for the network, making sure that we were sort of achieving those goals at every step of the way, hopefully without angering any of the creatives and trying to like give a stupid network note, so. <laughs> So are you involved also in reviewing the marketing and um, yeah, other so, types of processes? Yeah, so being in the network was really interesting because you, um, you do a lot of meetings. Um, and a lot of meetings are, are so informative because it is everything that they, so there's a whole department that does research. Mm -hmm. And they will send you reports every week. 
And it's, they're constantly trying to do research. What they do research for is that they need to do research so they can then give it to their ad salespeople mm -hmm. who then can sell the ads and that's how the networks make money. Mm -hmm. So research is one of the most important departments at a network. So it was imperative for us to always read what they were doing research on. So sometimes the research was on your show, which is always nerve-wracking, um, but sometimes it was about another show in the network and they would talk about or who the audience was. Um, and it got very creative and scientific at times. I mean, there were terms that we had for, I think we had like four different versions of different categories for people. I think we had like armchair, what do you call them, like armchair detectives, or I mean, it was just strange, like, or like will and gracers. Like we had really strange terms for groups right. that you were trying to aim for. So you at the network would get all these reports and you just have to sort of filter them in your brain and say, how do I develop something that maybe could hit this? Like, so if a research report came said, that said, we really need to show that is, you know, female empowerment. And you're like, oh my God, I have one, you know? So then <laughs> yeah. you try and use that to get your show picked up, so. And so the research, is it like surveys, focus groups, like all sorts of different things? All different versions of it. Um, and depending on what you're actually doing the research on, it, it varies. Um, generally, they just do their, they usually do a lot of focus groups. Um, I've been at, I've sat in and on focus groups on both sides. When, we, when I was at Alloy, you get called in to watch people talk about Gossip Girl and what they love um, and or what they hated. <laughs> um, and that was always interesting, mm -hmm. um, but more just, I think, amusing to watch. People talk about television as if they had real you know, control of what could happen on television. Um, but that was really fun to watch just behind that you know, right. window and seeing them talk about it. But at the network level, when you're focus grouping, usually you focus group pilot or you focus group you know, a couple episodes of a show. And it's more nerve wracking on the network side because you do, you're asking questions for why people don't watch the show or would you want to watch the show? Mm -hmm. um, you know, my last year at Bravo, we had two pilots that we shot. One that was the end of becoming imposters, and one that was sort of a murder mystery set at a college campus. And one, and internally, we all had our favorites. I think the murder mystery one was actually the one that everyone really thought was a better pilot, but the other one tested through the roof, and there was just no way you could. You can combat that, you know? Mm -hmm. So ultimately, one got picked up and the other one didn't, so. And, and you said it really goes down to what the president decides yep. and how they read the data and their own personal. Yeah, sort of and sometimes she'll go against it. Yeah. She'll take it all and say, you know what, I still believe in this. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me make that decision. Yeah. Uh, would they own the show, the rights to the shows, or were these usually licensed from other companies? We usually, so um, sort of the way the business is now is everyone's vertically integrated. So if you're, we have a deal now at ABC Studios, which means we have direct access to ABC and what they want. Mm -hmm. um, most of the production companies at 20th, they are aiming for Fox. Um, with Bravo, we were part of the NBC Universal family. Mm -hmm. And that happened shortly, I think, after I got there. And our sister studio was UCP, Universal Cable Productions. Mm -hmm. So. UCP had traditionally only been a studio that you would lay projects off of. Like if you sold something to sci-fi, you sold something to USA, they would be come in as a studio. You didn't have to go to them first. 
So, but they eventually became a bigger sort of selling force. Mm -hmm. um, but when we were at Bravo, we realized quickly that um, we, could, we could develop pilots with Warner Brothers, we could develop pilots with Sony, and we had a couple of them that were really great, but the decision process of making that pilot, if it was a UCP project, was so much easier. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the theory behind that is just, if you're not making money in the network, if the show fails, you know, it doesn't rate that well, but the studio's making money. Right. So someone's feeding the right. larger company. Right. So. No, it makes sense. Well, let's, let's pivot a bit to yep. going from Bravo, and these are great examples too. It's very helpful to have the details. Great. Uh, to, you pretty recently moved to Juvie, correct? Yeah, about a year and a half. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. So you, you're settled in a bit now. Yeah. Uh, so maybe you can walk us through uh, what you do at Juvie and how that is different or similar to prior roles. Yeah, so it was exciting to go back to, so after the network, I was sort of done <laughs> being on that side of the table. Um, you know, being on the network is great, but I always feel like you, you know too much by the end of your run there. Like you know way too much about research, you know way too much about your audience, you know way too much about what shows failed and how you, and so our target there became very small. So I was excited to move over back to the selling side mm -hmm. um, and develop for something that wasn't, you know, this small little target. And, you know, what I would say is that it, coming out of the network world, it does make you a fuller executive and you're in a different category in terms of how people perceive you. Mm -hmm. So prior to that, I was only getting those VP job listings. Coming out of Bravo, I was getting, will you run this company? Will you be, the, will you be you know, basically my old boss at Alloy? Right, right. And so that's a bigger responsibility, but I sat down with Viola and Julius and they were amazing. Um, they had just this incredible point of view on what they wanted to do with the company. Um, they really wanted to, you know, platform as many of these sort of unique voices as possible, um, put people in front of the camera and behind the camera of different backgrounds, telling those stories that people don't normally get to hear, all those marginalized voices, how do we as a company become a voice for the voiceless, mm -hmm. um, as she always says. And so it was just this, like, the right time, and I was just feeling like, you know, I was feeling also at a point in my career where I wanted to give back a little bit more. And I felt a responsibility to do that. Mm -hmm. And it was exciting to think about what Viola brings to her company and the brand that she has. And then what I had done, which was a little more commercial, and how do we bring our brands together to create shows that are a little bit different than either one of us would have done. So, but in terms of what I do now that's different than what I did before, it's, it's a lot of the same what I was doing at Alloy. Okay. I'm just the first one getting the phone call. You know? Yeah. Um, but I'm also, at this point now, also sort of, with Juvie, they're so hands-off in terms of my development process. Mm -hmm. They really trust me with the brand. So everything that we're developing is something that I put forward. Um, everything that is in there is something that, you know, we developed internally or we optioned a book. Um, or, you know, someone came in with a pitch and we decided we want to do that project. Um, you rarely at least at this company, get, you know, Viola coming in and saying, absolutely not, you know, because she really trusts the team that works for her. Mm -hmm. So, but a lot of what I'm doing is the same. It's finding the writers, finding the ideas, um, selling to your studio, selling to the network, and trying to get that show picked up. So, I know that you've done a 
fairly ra wide range of content yeah. since you've been at GB, yeah. right? And I don't know if you want to show an example of the shows that you have clips of. Yeah. Or, or the sizzle reels for it. Are those forthcoming shows? So yeah, so maybe yeah, this is a good time to show some other clips. So um, at Juvie right now, we don't have anything currently in to show in terms of for the scripted stuff. I can talk about some of the projects we have. Mm -hmm. But the two things that I brought for you guys to take a look at, one is a sizzle reel for an upcoming ABC series called Last Defense, and it's an uh, unscripted series. So at Juvie, we are doing one hour, half hour cable unscripted, and our unscripted stuff tends to be a little more social justice oriented. Um, it really needs to start a conversation. It really needs to push forward some, you know, not an agenda, but just something provocative. And so this one is called Last Defense, um, and I'll show it to you in a little bit. And then the other one um, is something we're shopping around right now. So we actually have not set this one up at a network yet, but I thought it'd be good for you guys to sort of see some of the stuff that goes into you know, what you need to sell something to like a Netflix or an Amazon or whatnot. So, um, Terrific. Let's take a look. Great. So this is Last Defense. This is the one that's at ABC. This will be on the air um, first quarter of next year, so sometime in 2018. Yeah. Great. So those are strikingly different types yeah. of programs. Yes. And I'm curious, uh, maybe first you can kind of tell us what the process is like for developing these kinds of programs. Do yeah. you, how do you find for the unscripted? Uh, and then it, have you shot the, the second one? The, uh, no, so, that, so it, Last Defense came to us from ABC's news division. They have a production company called Lincoln Square. And they pitched us this one-liner. And I said, wow, that sounds really, really cool. But even in the development process of that, it started out as a show about people who worked for the Innocence Project helping other people get off death row. Mm -hmm. And what it ended up becoming was an examination of two incredible cases of people on death row who may, may be guilty, may be innocent, we're not sure and we can't say, mm -hmm. but more where did the process fail them. So in that way, that, that process came a little bit differently. So that sizzle actually was cut just recently to sell internally for ABC excitement about the show. Mm -hmm. um, with uh, first, that came just a little more packaged um, the production company came to us and said, we have this project, we want you guys to come on board. Um, you know, one of the things that we as a company bring to the table is obviously Viola and her clout um, and her platform. And so they needed someone like her to really tell these stories and really, you know, when you're at, when you're trying to sell to like one of these networks, they want something to market, you know? And so if you can say it's a show from Viola Davis, that means a lot. And so our agents actually had put us in touch with this company. They showed us this sizzle. I fell in love with it. Um, we came on board, and we've just been pitching the last couple weeks. So It, it looks exciting. I Thank hope you. that you're able to land something soon. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what uh, involvement do you have as these kinds of projects on? Were you giving? input on, for example, the, the first one? Yeah, so it's a lot of the same process. Development script and unscripted is very similar in terms of what you're doing. You're, you know, when you're on the producing side of things, 
you're literally discussing every single piece of it. That was the sort of unique thing about working in television that I thought was so exciting was that everything that is on screen you've made a decision on, um, like down to the color of the socks or down to, so like with uh, Last Defense, that sizzle, that was the fourth version I had seen. It's still a work in progress, but like with that, when we first saw the cases, we got a, we had saw like three or four different versions of um, what those two inmates would look like, who were the two we're gonna follow. And so we got to pick who those two were. And we got to sort of say, oh, here's a list of questions that you wanna ask them when you go and interview them. Well, maybe there's a different angle on this than just the, did you do it or did you not do it? Mm -hmm. um, with that sizzle specifically, I mean, down to the title, it was called 4% at one point, and we wanted to change it so that it was a little broader. 4% refers to the number of people who are on death row who are still innocent but we were thinking longer series, so if this show succeeds, it was so hard to find these two people because they were on death row and the access to them is so hard that we wanted to make sure that we could broaden it out to people who were just wrongly convicted. Mm -hmm. So that was a discussion, you know, and then, but the fun of that is you're doing a title brainstorm. Like you're just coming up, like driving your car, you're just making little notes in your phone, like what about that title? And you send that to the network and they decide what they like best. But for that sizzle, like I just remember as I was watching just now, when I saw the first version of that, I was like, oh, something about this feels very old. And it was the music. It was this like thumping, like, like almost like bass sound. And it was, it just felt like, I don't know, it just felt like a, like a, a series on PBS. Mm. And didn't really feel like our company, didn't feel like ABC. And so I said to them, and I was like, why don't we try and change it up a little bit? Maybe look at some of these newer bands and we had just gone to see Odessa in concert, and I was like, check them out. So they ended up using some of that music in the sizzle. So like things like that, is, it's, it's sort of like, for me, it's sort of the fun of the business is that you can bring your own personal experience and always constantly cha challenge and change sort of what is presented to the outside world, mm -hmm. and hopefully then sort of startly shift sort of conversation. It's interesting to hear the process yeah. <laughs> with this, and, and especially something that's so fresh yeah. To you. Yeah. Um, and I, I have a million more questions I want to ask, but I want to have time for the students to be right. able to ask questions. So oh. I'm going to awkwardly pivot <laughs> to no, no. Uh, having uh, them have a chance to ask questions and already hands in the air. Uh, so Annie is there with the microphone. To... What are you watching? Oh, what am I watching? <laughs> Good question. What am I not watching? Um, well, so part of the job is to watch everything if you can. Um, but what I'm loving right now is. Um, Outlander, obsessed with it, um, and it's like. And then what else am I watching? We just finished Mindhunter. We just binged all that. In the middle, Stranger Things. Um, what else did I watch recently? The Crown is one of my favorite shows of this last year, um, and it's actually one of the shows I feel like we as a company could have made if we were British. Um, <laughs> but that that level of like, you know, quality is is what we strive for. Um, but on the scripted stuff, that's what I'm watching a lot of. Um, doing a lot of Netflix, obviously. Um, they're just doing such good stuff. And on the unscripted stuff, I watch all the like, I watch all the Housewives, and I watch Survivor, I watch Big Brother. Um, I like my reality a little trashy. Um, <laughs> but on the scripted stuff, I'm totally open. I, you know, I go back to my roots a little bit. Sometimes I watch Riverdale, and do a little teen soap when I can. Um, Atlanta's a great show. Um, Master of None's another great one. So it's hard to watch it all. It's hard to watch it all. 
Tough work. Yeah, I have a question about the, um, you were talking about how the companies kind of like can only serve like ABC, yeah. correct? Um, is that pretty much like that's just happened to you guys or is that like pretty much for like every production company? It's pretty much across the board at this right. moment. Okay. You know, unless you are, so there's two studios that can really, it was three, but two that are really selling to broadcast um, that don't have a home. Warner Brothers is one. The one home they have is CW. So they're the W in CW. Um, C, the C is CBS. So they can sell to CW, um, but otherwise they have no network homes. So they will sell everywhere. Sony's the other one. Sony's the other one that doesn't have sort of a, a platform for their, their content. Um, but what you end up finding with those two, those two companies, they make incredibly rich deals with writers and showrunners that in the sort of current business model, there are so many shows out there right now that all the high level people, all the people you want to create shows are so busy working on shows in production, whether it's for the 8,000 on Netflix or the 3,000 on Amazon, whatever it is, there's, they're all tied up. And so those studios who don't have a home, they try and lock down some of these high level names like Greg Berlanti for Warner Brothers. And so when you're Greg Berlanti, you can sell everywhere. ABC will buy from you, NBC will buy from you, Fox will buy from you. But if you're not one of those names, you're not something that people, some, a producer that someone knows like that and has sort of track record for success, you are sort of dependent on your studio if you have a deal with them. So for most of the pods at a studio, um, production company at a studio, is um, you sell upwards to what your home is. And so if it's ABC Studios, it's ABC. Um, 20th is the Fox, like I said. CBS Paramount, CBS, I'm sorry, CBS Studios is the CBS. Um, and CBS and Warner Brothers both sell the CW. So, you know. Thank you. Of course. So you had slightly mentioned uh, like your different approach to like Coco. You're like it's online, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, could you kind of go into more in depth uh, how different your approach was like selling that show, and like the more so the relationship between advertisers because it was a different platform. So that so yeah so. With that one, we were selling to the network, and they we sort of lean on them a little bit, you know, to tell us sort of what we can and could not do. But because it was online, we didn't have to worry about advertisers. Um, so that was a sort of different conversation with them. Um, and and it depends on where you're what you're selling or where you're selling to. You couldn't have that conversation in your own head. Um, like if you're going to Netflix, you don't really have to worry about you know, what the content is, you can kind of push the envelope. If you're trying to sell to Showtime, same thing. But if I'm trying to sell to like a TNT or, um, you know, a Sci-Fi or USA, I do have to make sure that the kind of stuff that we're doing, you know, can be advertiser friendly, you know. And there are some certain projects that we develop or that we, we have looked at in the past that we say we can't do because I just don't know who's going to buy it, you know. And a lot of that knowledge is coming from having been on the buying side and realizing that there's so many hurdles to overcome to get that show in the air, despite how cool that project may be. If we are gonna work so hard and only get it to a point where they're gonna pass on it, it's not worth the time to do it, you know, so. Um, earlier on, you said that uh, when you first went to LA, you had a lot in your arsenal. Yeah. Um, and so I'm always just trying to figure out like tangible items that we can actually graduate with to prove our worth or what we're capable of. Yeah. And so I'm curious what you were referring to when you said that. Sure. So the things that I really took with me were um, screenwriting, which is great, just as sort of base knowledge. You don't have to want to be a writer, but just to know the process of what it was to be a writer was great. 
um, you're always going to be noting something. So that's a big sort of that's sort of a big process to understand. Um, you know, I always cite this, and I give Richard Lewis a lot of credit for this. Is I took a producing producing class of his, and I remember the tests were about the trades, and at that point we were still getting them by paper. So it was who are the executives at the top of the studios, and we would like study the variety and be quizzed on it. And I would say that that training was so good, and I recommend. I'm sure you guys are all following Deadline and Hollywood Reporter now as much as you can, but starting to put in your mind who the tops of these companies are is so important because each person brings to them with them a different type of personality to each of the networks. And ultimately, you're selling to personalities. You're selling to these people who ultimately have to make the decisions. So you know, just seeing today that Michael Wright went to Epics, like that's something that we all track because now we know what Epics wants to do you know, and what that means. And, um, following, um, uh, what's his name, David Madden from Fox to um, AMC. It's like these are the people that you know, what they, if you've worked with them, then you know what they're going to bring to the table when they move somewhere else. So that was always good to know, it's just who the players were. Um, one of the other things I would say as part of your arsenal that you have is just be a fan of television. Like, watch everything. Watch everything if you can, and and just have knowledge of sort of what's out there, um, because ultimately, when I'm meeting with someone and I'm looking at writers or even someone to hire, the thing that I always want to make sure is that they they love the business, you know, they want to be in it, they want to entertain people, and they know what's out there and they know the variety. Um, we don't have to always agree on what that you know entertainment is, but we should definitely you should be a fan of it. Um, and then I would say. Um, Probably the last thing I would say in terms of the arsenal that you have when you're here is, is get out in as many social situations as you can to really start getting used to talking about what you love. If you want to be a writer, talk about the shows you want to create. If you want to be an executive, talk about the shows that you love or what, what you want to make. You know, I think starting to be able to get out there and not be afraid to talk to people about that is going to serve you so well because so much of what getting that first job is, is who you know. Um, and my first job I got because I had gone and had lunch with someone at Storyline who had gone to UT. I did not know him. We were introduced by a mutual friend. And he asked what I wanted to do. And I literally said to him, I want to work in television. And he said, oh, I'm firing my receptionist today. Do you want a job? And I said, <laughs> yeah. I said yes. Um, it took six months to interview and whatnot. But I was like, yes. And so that worked out. <laughs> So um, I was just kind of curious, uh, what's your take on reality TV now that we're, I mean, we're always kind of told now that we're in the golden age of television and now yeah. that streaming and nonlinear content and Netflix and all that is like all the rave. Do you see reality t TV still kind of continuing despite all this? And I do. And a reform or? I do. I think it's going to, I think reality is not going anywhere okay. at this point. Um, you're always going to have the big ones like Survivor and Big Brother um, that'll last for Bastard will be on forever. Um, you know, it'll morph. American Idol won't go away. You know, it's coming back again this year. Um, but even Netflix is looking to do reality. You know, they are. They have a couple of shows developing. They've actually just beefed up their entire department to do documentary series um, or even just traditional like HGTV type of series. So it really is starting to. Reality is part of the conversation for everybody. Um, part of it is also just it's really affordable. You can make a lot of money off of it by doing something really cheap. 
and you can try a lot more. So, but my take on it is that, I mean, I love it, so I don't, I don't have anything against it. And I think it's necessary for me to, down, to sort of like decompress my brain when I go home. <laughs> um, but yeah. One last question. As we know, uh, with Juvie, you guys are obviously making an effort to make minority voices yeah. and like special, you know, uh, marginalized stories, especially. Mm -hmm. Do you find that this is like especially sellable uh, with our current political climate, or that it has shifted since you've started there a year and a half ago? It's a good question. Uh, it's definitely shifted. So I think as a business as a whole, we have all shifted our point of view. Um, I think we were all somewhat taken aback by Trump's election. Whether or not you believed him or did not, I think we, no, one, no one thought that was going to happen. Um, at least in California, they didn't. And I think we were sort of blinded by that. And, but I, luckily, I think where we got to was, which I think is ultimately a good place, which is you know, as artists and as entertainers, it is our job to push the envelope. It's our job to make people think a little bit differently. So it has changed the way that we all operate because we all feel a little bit more responsible for trying to get different points of view out there. Um, and for us as a company, we don't necessarily go out there and say, you need to go and change the world or you need to believe what we believe in. But if we can somehow get you to start a conversation, that to me is the ultimate goal. Because you know, everyone has their own point of view. We're not one to say that you need to think one way or another. Um, but in terms of how we're developing, you know, the networks, all want their diverse shows. They all want that, that they all want uh, This Is Us. They all want their scandal. They all want their, you know, they know that Get Out's doing great and Girls Trip did fantastic. They want, they want their, you know, diverse cast to sort of promote. But I think we have to be careful because I have a real allergic reaction to what I call the HR game of casting, which is basically developing a show and saying, everybody can be anybody, you know, and I think it's fine for certain companies to do, but for us, because it's Viola, and because so much of what she does is bring the authenticity of that character to life, um, and finding the base human emotion that you can relate to, we should lean into the cultural specificity of these people that we're telling stories of. We should tell you know, the Asian American story. Um, we have a book that the studio has optioned for us that we're trying to find a writer on, and it's about you know, four estranged cousins in Hawaii all of mixed race, half Asian, um, half Chinese, half Filipino, half Japanese, half white, and they reunite and find a legacy again. And for me, that is a great way of tackling, you know, a culture we've never seen before, but still feels somewhat familiar. You're still going to get this sort of like fantasy element of being in Hawaii, but it's a family show. But now you're seeing a different face to it. So that's a great question to conclude on yeah. too. So I think thank you so much. This oh, was really welcome. terrific. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Media Industry Conversations. For more information about upcoming speakers or to hear past guests, visit rtf.utexas.edu slash MIC or follow us on Twitter at RTFMIC. If you have a chance, rate and review us on iTunes. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary with the assistance of Brett Siegel, Britta Hansen, and Annie Major. And the program was produced and edited by me, Kyle Rather. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film and the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. We hope you join us next time for another media industry conversation. There are 
western land, mighty wonderful to see. It is a land I understand, and it's there 